Good evening. My name is Janet McCarthy Grimm, and I'm the president of the New York Book Forum, and we are so delighted to have you here for this evening's program. I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the entire board of the New York Book Forum, and we're so excited about our first live panel discussion. Watch the show, grab the book. The committee has been working very hard on putting together this first live event, and the committee is run by our amazing Lauren White Jackson, and she is to be commended for all of her work on this program. I now would like to turn the meeting over to our moderator for this evening's uh, conversation, Pooja Telekacherla. Welcome and good evening, everybody. Janet, thank you for the warm welcome. My name is Pooja Telekacherla, and I am Licensing and Subsidiary Rights Manager with the American Psychiatric Association Press in Washington, D.C. I also serve as adjunct faculty in the Master's in Publishing Program at George Washington University here in Washington, DC. It is such a pleasure to be here to join all of you in this conversation. Let me first welcome our panelists. Metta Norcair is the creative executive at Boom Studios, a production company and comic book publisher with a first look deal at Netflix. In her position, Metta oversees film and telev television adaptations based on properties from the Boom Studios library including the upcoming Netflix animated series, Met Cadets, and the Eisner Award-winning series, Lumberjanes. Welcome, Meta. Thanks for having me. Angela Silver fell into children's production by chance, despite having little interest in children's books or production. But it must have been divine intervention, because nearly 15 years later, she still marvels over pretty, pretty text stock or the fabulous use of foil print stamping. She's worked at Simon & Schuster, Workman, and HarperCollins Christian Publishing, bouncing back and forth between first prints and reprints. Now she handles both at Penguin Random House. As senior production manager for Pedantia Comics, she's moved from children's books into manga. She holds a master's in publishing from Pace University and is a former co-chair and judge of the New York Book Show. When not creating or reading books, she's involved with her local parish plays the flute, and definitely does not get lost hiking in the woods. Welcome, Angela. Thanks. It's great to be here. And finally, David F. Walker is an award-winning comic book writer, journalist, and educator. He is best known for his work in graphic novels and comics, which includes the Eisner Award and Ringo Award-winning series, Bitterroot, published by Image Comics, and the Eisner Award-nominated series, Naomi, by DC Comics. He is also the critically acclaimed graphic novelist for the Black Panther Party by Ten Speed Press. David's most recent project is The Hated, soon to be a Netflix series. He also teaches part-time at Portland State University. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. So streaming television programs have been part of our entertainment world long before the pandemic. Uh, which relegated most of us to our homes and to the norms of both binge watching TV and binge reading uh, books and other print media. While viewers are keenly aware of the shows that started out as books, there's so much more to the adaptation process than we realize. Throw in some paper shortages and a sizable boat stuck in a certain canal, and you've got a whole new world of problem solving and creative solutions. My first question is about the book to screen process. 
Meta, can you unpack the process of adapting books into movies and television programming for us? Like, who are the players? Where does it start? Kind of how does it happen? That's a great question. Thank you, Pooja. Um, it's also really, uh, you know, there's not one answer suits all with, with adaptations, but from my experience working at Boom Studios, you know, it typically always starts with that underlying source material, which we refer to as intellectual property or IP for short. And it really um, comes about from our team on the media side of the company, having that creative conversation initially, like what's exciting about that property? Do we see it as a feature or a TV show? Should it be animated or live action? Um, there's a tons, you know, there's a lot of strategy conversations just around like what would satisfy a need in the marketplace um, for an adaptation of, of the given property. Um, from there, we would typically have a conversation, you know, figuring out a writer to adapt the property. Is it the creator themselves that should come in and, and you know, write that screen adaptation? Or do we need to find a different voice that has other sensibilities that can complement what's already there and elevate the story? Is it, you know, building out mythology? Is it, um, you know, comics, oftentimes, as David, I'm sure, knows, is you have a limited run to tell a story. You know, a limited series is only about four or five, maybe six issues. That's not a lot of space to tell a story. So in terms of the process of the adaptation, it's figuring out what are the key elements that really work um, and that are translatable to film or TV and figuring out who are the auspices that we should be partnering up with, be it a writer, a director, producing partner, cast. It's, you know, it's that brain, creative brainstorm of figuring out what would make the most sense for an adaptation that would really thrive in the marketplace. Yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of options. So editing, editing a direction seems like the biggest part of it, right? Yeah, for sure. So I'm curious, David, as a comic book creator and writer and author, what's what's your role in this and what's your perspective on kind of the origin of the story and where it goes next? Well, I just I, I try to think of myself primarily as just the writer of, of whatever property I'm working on. Right. I don't I try not to get too caught up in the, the, the possibility of, oh, this would this would make a great TV show or this would make a great movie. It, it's is this going to be a good graphic novel? Is this going to be a good comic? Because if I, I can't do that, then the, ne the, the rest isn't going to fall into place, right? Um, and, and as Meta was saying, there's, there, there are considerations to take. In, there are things to take into consideration when you're creating a comic, uh, not the least of which is there's a limited amount of space uh, to tell your story. And, and, you know, the pictures don't move and there's no music and there's all of that. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the most important thing is to make sure you're doing something that's that's entertaining and compelling, and that's going to connect with an, with an audience. And and if you do that, hopefully, someone in in another industry working in another form of media will will recognize that and see that. And 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 the, the trick is is um, is to understand. Like when I go into a meeting with someone from whether it's Netflix or HBO, that. They've already got their people lined up who specialize in making TV shows, making movies. They're going to have their own ideas. And a lot of it's about making sure that, that we all come together on the same page. Um, but I, I, you know, I tell my students uh, I, that, you know, when they're talking about writing and creating stuff, I tell them, you know, if you're doing this to get a film deal, you should just go straight to film, right? Don't like, like you have to have a love for this medium. If, if you, you know, if you love prose, 
then you write prose. But if you're writing prose hoping to get the film deal, you know, it's it's like planting an apple tree so you can grow oranges. It's it's it doesn't work out. But what happens when it does? What happens when your when your apple trees not only spread oranges but all kinds of interesting hybrids? I mean, what in those environments, how much of your own authorship do you really bring into the meetings in terms of your your way of envisioning what the music would be like, what the adaptation would really look like in a different format? You know, that's and that's a great question. It it varies from publisher to publisher and from whoever has um, acquired the rights, whether it's, you know, film or television. I, I'm in a unique position that I have three properties right now that are in various stages. Um, Naomi is currently a television show on the CW. I co-created that series at DC, and I have absolutely nothing to do with that show. Um, and 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 that's fine, you know. I I I don't lose sleep over that. At uh, Bitter Root is currently in development at Legendary, and we have a, a producer attached. We have a director attached. We're looking for a new screenwriter, and and I'm kept up to date on all that sort of stuff. I don't want to be as involved as some people might want to be because that's that's a really big production. It's that's you know we're looking like at a hundred million dollar movie. And, and that just terrifies me too much. So I use that, I'm using this as an opportunity to learn about an industry that I'm not very familiar with. Uh, and then I have a, a project that's over at Netflix and, and that one, um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly getting drafts from the screenwriter and I'm getting updates on what the meetings are like. And, and I'm using that project as like, that's my, my master's course in, in, in basically film and TV. I'm using that to learn so that I can then, with the next property, say, hey, I'd, I'd like to be the one to write this. I want to produce this. I, I, I've known enough creators who've killed the deal because they want too much too soon. And, and so I just sort of sit back and learn and pay attention to what everybody says and, and, and make notes. And, and if something's great, I tell them it's great. And if it's not so great, I find a polite way of saying, you know, you, you might want to rethink this um, and, and just trying to make myself always open and available to anyone who has questions. I think you've pitched yourself as the perfect author with that attitude, which really uh, <laughs> enables a lot of creativity across medium and across other other roles in the whole production, um, which is wonderful. So. So let's say that, you know, $100 million, massive budget production, um, and it does really well successfully commercially on the screen. All of these viewers who have just been introduced to something on Netflix, you know, in the movie theater, they want to go straight to their local bookstore and buy a copy. And publishers don't always have that kind of heads up and lead time, especially given supply chain issues, paper shortages, and just the, the very different world that we're uh, living and working and creating in. Um, Angela, you're the reprint and print uh, master of all of this. How, like, what is your crystal ball? How do you go about keeping inventory and marketplaces, you know, primed for this kind of success that David speaks of? Yeah, so I actually spoke to our inventory manager today and I'm like, so what is your crystal ball? And she's like, uh, it's kind of like we do our best. So, you know, they, and we all work together in this. So because I'm in production, I'm at the end of the process. So when it comes to me, like, it's already popular. It's already booming. 
So especially now, like, you know, in, in the past, like when I was in children's books years ago, it's like, oh, good, this is now a movie. Let's just print some books and we'll have it in two weeks and everything is great. Now we kind of have to juggle things around more. So like, you know, we were like, okay, this is, especially now in manga, like anime is, anime is like off the charts. Manga sales are off the charts, even from a year ago. I guess the pandemic happened and everyone wanted to read manga, which I appreciate. So, you know, we, we just, we just kind of shuffle things around and manga is really unique because for, for a lot of books, if it, if it gets like a movie adaptation or it's on Netflix, we're like, oh, I really, I really want to read the book first. And we go out and buy the book and you see this huge spike in sales and we're rushing to reprint because maybe that spike will only be a couple weeks. Maybe it'll be a few months. We need those books right now. Not just because we want to sell them, but the people want to consume it. But manga is a little different because it is a series. It keeps on going and the book sales keep on going. So we have a little more time, but it's still like fans want to know what's going on. And for a lot of series, like the, the anime is out, but the anime only goes so far into the series. So it's like, you know, they'll do their research. And I'm like, okay, it's like, this is season one. It goes to volume 18, but the manga goes to volume 25. I need to buy all of those. I need to find out what happened. So we really try to keep on top of it. And it's, it's not easy sometimes. You know, the, the shelves have been a little bare, but I think we're, we're, we're getting back into it and we're, we're trying to prioritize. Yeah. I would also just to add to that, I think there's definitely a correlation between the two. And I think a good rule of thumb usually is, you know, the greater the success of the media adaptation, the higher the book sales after, you know, uh, whereas, you know, the lower the success of the media adaptation, you know, the more returns a publisher can expect. I think that's like a good way of framing it, perhaps just from a really macro point of view. And I, I, I'll i add to that, that I think that sometimes there's um, some things that will get it adapted aren't that aren't even necessarily that well known in, in say, the comics world, right? It'll be a smaller property. One of mine is like that. And it's most people don't even know it, right? Like it was it was one of those things that was seen by the right people at the right places. And because I'm publishing this one myself, I'm having to gauge, okay, you know, when am I going to have to do reprints? You know, I, I can I can go down to my storage closet and, and figure out how much inventory I have right now. Um, and, and so for me, the conversation is now becoming, um, maybe I need to find another publisher who can, who can handle this sort of stuff because, you know, best case scenario, the show actually goes into production and, and it becomes a huge hit. Like, I can tell you there's no way that I can keep up with that, right? I, I can tell you that today and that's not going to change tomorrow or the day after that. Um, and, and I tend to try to be very active in, in a lot of that stuff, um, making sure you, you want to make sure that, you know, your, your stuff is in print because there's, there's nothing worse than um, as, as a fan, you know, you, you see something, whether it's on uh, TV or in, in the movies and, you know, I'm that guy who pays attention and, you know, based on the book by, and then the first thing I want to do is get that book. And, you know, next thing you're, you, it's like, oh, this has been out of print for 25 years. Um, you know, and you, you start to wonder, like, how did this happen? Yeah, those, those kind of sleeper hits are really interesting from 
like the publisher side because I'll get my list of reprints and we're like that but like we haven't seen that book in 10 years but it was a movie and I mean that's exciting for me because maybe it's something I like you know I want people to see it again but we have to think okay who who printed this and do they still have the files yeah and if not where are you going to find really fast four color printing domestic that can get that stock available to you right away in a warehouse I mean these were these were considerations well before you know pandemic and other supply chain but it's really exacerbated at the same time increased the public's appetite for for content which is great right so it's you know a silver lining of being stuck at home or being stuck in sort of environments that are unusual for us enable us to really consume material uh, more quickly and more readily and to watch an entire series in a weekend but then when that appetite reaches a point where it has to meet with like a, a material uh, concern like how do i get that book or how do we stock the shelves it's it's a really big issue um angela have you had any like extremely creative solutions to that are you how are you dealing with that? i mean you're really in the in the crucible of that right now yeah and really like our our biggest i guess success is just like we just prioritize so if something pops up and we're, we we try to i mean we generally know ahead of time like we know that this manga is getting an anime so like we'll compare it to other titles of a similar genre. We'll see how they sold. We'll just say, if if we have no idea, like this is this is a new genre, this is a new like you know whatever this new type of book. We'll just say, let's just let's just order six months of stock, and then you know we actually have to study the list and say, okay, this this book like we'll be out of stock in like three months, so we can move that reprint to later, and so and we just kind of have to shuffle and reprioritize. It's never a dull moment. I'm especially curious um, when, this is just a personal curiosity about cover designs. And so I work mostly, if my career has been in university press publishing and I have this sort of nerd academic bent, but when there's a book that says like now a major motion picture or it has artwork on the cover that reflects either the casting or other aesthetic direction that the film went in, um, I tend to not want to buy that copy of the book because I'm sort of a purist about like, I was interested in this before there was a movie. I mean, is that is that a market shift you're seeing or are audiences just now kind of accommodating the fact that a lot of the material that they see either in animated series or other TV film adaptations that they're sourced from books and that's a normal progression for them? I, I think I think people are starting to realize that most of us don't want the media tie-ins. Like, because I do the same thing. It's like, oh, I really want this book. And I run out to the bookstore to make sure I get the original copy before the media tie-in exists. And yeah. And, and It's, you know, th th this is such an interesting question because I'm also that, that nerdy purist. But I'll tell you, I've been at enough comic book conventions where, where I've heard this exact quote. Oh, The Walking Dead? I didn't know that was a comic. And, and it's like, I think to myself, how did you not know The Walking Dead isn't a comic? And you're, you're fighting this uphill battle, right? And, and I feel like amongst this group here and, and whoever's tuning in right now, we are, we're, we're preaching to the choir, right? A lot of us probably are those purists who, who, who feel like, oh yeah, no, I knew that this was a book, you know, long before the movie came out. Um, and, and so while I tend to poo-poo on the media tie-in stuff, I also know that like, 
there's there's a huge audience out there that needs to be told, you know, this is based on this thing here, and now it's a major motion picture, and 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 it it drives me nuts that we have to do that. But but I think of all the um, of all the evils that are out there in in both of these industries that we're talking about, that that that's like the lesser of the, of the evils. Yeah, I will say like on on the manga side, like we we don't do special covers, but we will put like on the back now an anime. And just so they can see, like, oh, that would be cool. But you know, we're I feel like the entire like like the manga fan base were all purists. So we need that original cover. And I mean also with the supply chain issues, there's not a lot of space to be having multiple editions of the same book. So we are kind of scaling back on that. So maybe the original's the only one out there now. It's interesting hearing oh. you both sorry, Fuji, just quickly. No, go I don't, I think I'm less of a purist when it comes to this. Of course, I can totally understand the, you know, collector's item mentality of why you would want the, the original. And I, I, I can definitely relate to that. But I also think there's something, um, you know, really incredible about the ability to have that crossover audience and bring people back into the original medium. And, and you know, on my side of things, working, you know, with adaptations, you know, our goal is always at Boom is to hopefully the adaptations, some, they still have the DNA of the source material. It'll still be a very clear, you know, thematic through line. It's still the characters that, you know, readers of the original comics loved, but the idea that you can then bring a new audience into the space and, and especially with our, you know, the Kaboom imprint at Boom, which is targeted towards early uh, readers. Um, it's exciting to kind of, you know, have a TV show come out that can then get them excited about reading. I think that's the opportunity with the media uh, covers for sure. Well, that was exactly what I wanted to ask you, Meta, is, is the opportunity to cultivate this kind of cross-hybrid audience between books and manga and other formats um, where the, the hunger and the desire, the interest in the source material really feeds across all of the platforms, especially as I think a lot of purists aside, especially you know in the present company, um, a lot of audiences are kind of agnostic about format. They want a great story. They want compelling characters. They want the really um, extraordinary kind of vision of the story. So do you see yourself working more closely with publishers to, to really do market research and develop that kind of audience as you're adapting material? I think there's definitely a relationship between the media team at Boom and then the publishers who are the publishing side, you know, with the editorial staff and all the folks that are much more knowledgeable about this, the publishing space than I am. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I think we're always keeping in mind, like, how can we stay true to the source, but how can we also um, open it up to an audience that would otherwise not engage with the material for whatever reason, you know, how can we make it um, adaptable and translatable to, you know, a four quadrant audience if that's what the buyer is looking for, you know, it's always, a, I think, a conver an ongoing conversation between the kind of publishing side and what makes the most sense for an adaptation and you know what audiences really want to see so it's definitely in our in our minds but i don't know if it necessarily dictates how we go about that for sure um something that's come up in the chat is a lot of participants here in this event have brought up uh the help and reacher and road to perdition as you know audiences of the film being unaware of the original source material as a book and then you know i think about folks like reese witherspoon and her hello sunshine and, and other folks who are really transparent about there's this brand new book and I've already adapted it and you can look forward to this being a film, you know, or some other format coming soon where 
you know, growing up in, in the era that I did, that wasn't as transparent as it could have been. So there's there's a richness to that, like a, a transparency around the industry, where things come from and how, how it's made, um, I think might engage audiences at an earlier stage than usual. I wanted to, speaking of transparency, I wanted to kind of pop the clutch and switch gears a little bit because I know folks attending this talk, at least I hope, are also interested in publishing careers and career development. And, you know, if it's one thing to say, I didn't know these, these movies, these major Oscar-winning films start out as books, but a lot of folks didn't realize that the stuff that all of us in this panel do is, is a living, it's a career, and how to get into those careers. And, um, you know, with Angela's bio that she kind of stumbled into it. But I'd love to hear from each of you how you got into it and what, what really what was the hook of your particular role and how it might have deviated and maybe how far it deviated from your origin story in publishing. Meta, why don't you start us off? Sure. Um, well, I'm from Denmark originally, um, so overseas. And uh, growing up, nobody in my family was in Hollywood or publishing, for that matter, in, or entertainment. Uh, so for me, the most uh, logical way in was really getting an education, which I know is a tremendous privilege. But um, I moved to the United States to pursue a graduate degree in producing for film and TV at USC. Um, but the, I think the most valuable part of my experience since moving to the United States was definitely the networking that I did, you know? And, and during the time I was in school, I was interning at 20th Century Fox. I was interning at James Wan's production company at MGM, you know, as many internships as, as was feasible to me in my schedule at the time, um, because it's all about who you know, um, for better or worse. And it is about the networking that you create for yourself and putting yourself out there and, and letting others know kind of, you know, what you want to do. So for me, getting into the industry was through the school route and then getting a job at Boom, starting, you know, first as the assistant to the film department and kind of working my way up and, and engaging with everything that we were doing, be it, you know, project drafts that came in and reading the newest comics that the publishing side was releasing. And, you know, I've been at the company for six years. So I think, you know, I was really lucky in that I landed at a place that would allow me to grow, but also a place that really could let me learn as well. You know, I didn't necessarily grow up in Denmark being surrounded by comics. That wasn't really something my brother was into either. It just wasn't, it wasn't a known medium to me at the time, which feels silly to say now, you know, I would have been one of the the fools that David was referring to earlier, you know, going to a convention being like, that was a comic? That was, I was yeah. that person, you know? Denmark gets a pass. Yeah, so. okay, okay. <laughs> appreciate that, appreciate it. I'll take it. Um, so yeah, I mean, that that's, to answer your question, that's how I got into the industry and then have worked my, up, my way up since then. I'll say though, I've worked in a couple other industries briefly, nothing as long as publishing, and I hope I never leave. Uh, I've never really worked in an environment, whether it's trade, academic, otherwise, where you're actually allowed to say, I didn't know that that was a book, or I didn't know that that's the source, you know, and, and folks were like, oh, yes, we will teach you more. And it's for, for the kind of level of competition among authors and properties um, and talent, of course, there's still a, a really deep sense of, you know, we love what we do and we love why it matters. And it sort of doesn't matter where we're doing it. And so that's, I think that's a really wonderful feature of publishing. David, you're also a professor. Um, what do you teach? And can you tell us more about sort of how you lead your students and how that influences your work as an author as well? Sure. Um, well, I, I, I'm adjunct at Portland State University. I teach in their comic studies program, which is currently a certificate program. Um, although they are, we're having meetings about how, you know, do we want to, develop it into a, a both a, a 
undergrad or a graduate program. Um, and there, and comic studies as a whole is still very new in this country. There's only a handful of universities in which you can get a degree. And, and so I'm one of those people who, who believes, well, if this medium is ever going to grow, we're going to have to educate people. Um, and, and there's a lot of pushback in, uh, against this idea of comic studies. And, but I also know that you know, 50, 60 years ago, there's pushback against film studies. There's pushback against television studies, right? The only way an industry and a medium can grow is, is, you, is if you teach and, and, you, and, you, and you learn and you, you cultivate a new generation. Um, and, but I, that said, I was sort of, I, I stumbled into teaching. Um, there, were, there was two other people I know from the comics industry. One was an editor, one is an, ed an editor, the other is a writer. They both were roped in to teaching and they kind of saw me like as a lame duck and, and brought me in. Um, and, and I enjoy aspects of it. What I really enjoy about it though, is that um, there's, as human beings, a lot of us are insecure. Um, creatives tend to be even more insecure. And so you get these young people right out of high school, maybe early twenties, and they're, they're insecure about themselves. They're insecure about their creativity. They don't know where to go or how to channel it. And, and so part of what I do, part of my, my um, teaching methodology is to not just teach how to write for comics, because if that's what I'm teaching you, I'm, I'm really teaching you how to get into an industry that could potentially break your heart and leave you, you know, flat broke. Um, I, I think of it more as storytelling, as, as communication of ideas. And, and that's what I put forth. And, and that's also how I carry my career, right? It's, it's even if I'm writing for this specific medium, if there's, there's only a handful of books or a handful of comics that maybe couldn't be translated into a book or I mean, in, in, into, a, into a film or a TV show, um, good storytelling, you know, is, is, um, is, is, I, I can't think of the word. I'm such a good writer right now. Um, you know, it 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 will um, expand beyond that medium, and it can be adapted, and it, and it can go anywhere. Um, but at, at your at the core, you have to be a good storyteller. You have to know how to um, engage people emotionally, whether it's through moving pictures or through static images. And and there's to me, there's a whole philosophy behind creativity, and that's a lot of what I bring to my students. It's it's this, um, you know, because I can't teach you how to be a good writer, right? I can give you permission to be a writer, and I can and I can help you by handing you a thesaurus or, you know, saying certain things like, you know, okay, this is great, except you don't have a second act, which means you don't have a middle. So therefore, you're missing one of the three key elements, you know, beginning, middle, and an end. Um, and and so it's I don't believe that you can necessarily teach somebody how to be a good creative but what you can do is you can help guide them in their own journey and that's that's to a certain extent that's what i how i got to where i am right was um a lot of asking questions and 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 a ton of failure right i i mean the 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 difference between myself and, and a lot of other people is just like i never let failure stop me you know it might keep me in bed for a couple extra days and i might not brush my teeth for a few weeks and and you know might get all funky but sooner or later i get out of bed i shower i brush my teeth and i get back to work um i i i, I don't fear 
failure so much as I fear inactivity and not being productive. And I don't even know if that answered your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> it did. And it also left a, a lot of inspiration because that that kind of perseverance is exactly it's it's they say it's a soft skill, but I think it's an extremely essential skill. And so much of what folks who are trying to get into publishing or trying to advance in publishing, um, they're on the journey of uncovering their own innate talents and soft skills and finding ways to channel that into what they do. Um, whether that means deepening what they do already in their roles or switching roles or kind of working across media. Angela, you said in your bio that you kind of didn't expect to end up starting where you started and it's it's shifted a little bit. Can you tell us more about what skills you've developed along the way and, and the ones that have been the most, uh, I think, pertinent for you in your success? Yeah, and I also want to say, uh, I actually took notes when you said creatives are insecure because I was a writing major who said, I can't do this for a living. <laughs> and so I figured out a different way to be involved with books. And I, I will echo Meta in that, like, I got my first job through networking, mostly. You know, I, I got my degree in publishing. I'm ready to go. And ultimately, it was a friend who said, there's a position open at Simon & Schuster. Does someone want it? And I'm like, I don't even know what production is, but I'll take it. And for production, like, I, I joke that I kind of fell into it by chance, but I really didn't, I didn't know as much about production as the other departments. Like, we know what editors do, we know what designers do, and a lot of people who go into that, like, know they're going into it. But I'm like, I don't, I don't really know, maybe I'll be an editor, and then I realize right away that I'm not an editor. But I think for, for production's a little unique because you don't necessarily have to know or like books. I mean, it helps a lot because I know for me, like I, I just, I just really love the finished product. Like we all, we, most of us get into publishing because we love books, but production loves the books themselves. We love the finished product. So if, if I'm ever in a bookstore with you, we just walk around and I'm like, wait, 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 I pulled something off the shelf. How did they afford this amount of foil at this price point? And that's, that's what I do. Not just like, oh, this is pretty. I want to know how it's done. And it's just really important to have a passion for that. And um, and it really, and this department, like, it's all about being organized. Like, it's especially now the, the shuffling around of title, titles, the prioritizing of things. Like, you get 25 emails at once, and what do you answer first? Like, you just, like, you just have to, you have to know what comes first. Like, you probably won't see a cover letter that doesn't say self-starter and great at project organization. Like, we all say it, but it's really important. And we, uh, we're, we're all a little, uh, little over-organized, I'll say. And it, it really helps with the, with the department. Triage, triage, triage. Every morning I triage my inbox. Every morning, every well, hour. Well, we do. <laughs> Um, I'm going to just put out a note for our, our audience. Uh, if you have questions, please include them in the chat so that we can field them amongst our conversation. And just in the interest of transparency, I'll also share, I was working at an independent record label in New York City when I was in college. I went to NYU and um, loved the record industry. I loved independent bands. I was going to concerts all the time. I understood that there is a curatorial process between the artist and the band, what the label does, what they invest in, and then the, the product that they uh, distribute and promote. I never really correlated that to books, which of course I loved reading. And one of my professors in undergrad was writing his first book with New York University Press. And apparently they needed editorial interns. So he just said, 
go talk to my friend. And I had no idea when I walked in and when they sat me down in the library full of books, that that's what I was walking into. But it, it made sense from a, a workflow standpoint. You and Angela, you talked about being really organized. I understood the conceptual level of we take an idea, we work with a person, we develop their creative product, we turn it into something that is, of course, beautiful and can be disseminated and shared. And it happened to be that he was, uh, you know, a major scholar in intellectual property and copyright, which is, again, a kind of hidden role in publishing that a lot of folks go in wanting to be uh, children's book editors or they want to edit and acquire creative nonfiction. Um, very few people go in saying, I want to deal with contracts and, and think about how this can be adapted and how we can create derivative works that are really powerful and reach new audiences. But they're, they're extremely important parts of the publishing process. I don't think without intellectual property, which Meta talked about at the very beginning, any of these adaptations would be possible. And in my experience, it ruins my ability to just watch TV I'm thinking, oh, I wonder how they adapted that. I wonder when they got started on this. I wonder what it was like to create this extra storyline if that was in the comic book, because it seems really driven by two. Like all of those questions are really, they demand creative answers. And so I just wanted to share that for our audience, folks who are maybe worried about the networking component. It's like, think about what you really care about and what you're really good at, regardless of how you apply that. And there'll probably be a role for that in publishing, whether it's creative, whether it's organizational, problem solving, whether it's contractual, um, all of these are really important components. Uh, so we have a question here from the chat. Can, I, just, I just want, can I just, I just want to say something really quick because, um, you know, uh, when Angela talked about stumbling into her career and, um, and, and Ned is talking about networking, both of which are, you know, networking is crucial. What I, what I tell my students all the time is that, um, opportunity will never in your life knock on your door ever it will clog your toilet. And so you have to not be afraid to, to put your hand into that toilet and, and see what's in there. Um, the greatest opportunities that have come to me in my life and that have advanced my career the most, I didn't think I could do those things. You know, when, when someone said to me, hey, have you thought about you know, teaching at university? My first response was no, never. You know, and now here I am nearly 10 years later doing it when when I was approached by a publisher to do nonfiction graphic novels, I thought to myself, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but you, I, I'm wired in such a way that that sometimes the thing that scares me the most is the thing that I will move towards most quickly. And, and I think that you have to, um, especially if you're looking for a career, and, and it doesn't matter what industry it is, you have to be willing to um, accept the fact that what you're looking for is never going to present itself to you in the way you think it will. And, and that in the process, you may discover something else that you, you, you like. You know, you, you, you think you wanna be an English major and you're terrible at math, but then someone explains math to you in a way that next thing you know, you're a mathematician. And, and you have to be open to these things. Otherwise there's, I mean, that's part of what life is all about is just being open to, to these experiences. Amen to that. Um, there's a question that's coming through the chat that I think is just a super fun question. So this is for each of you. Uh, what is your favorite recent adaptation that you have worked on or admire and why? I have one that I didn't work on, but uh, I really enjoyed Sweet Tooth on Netflix. I thought that was really well executed. That's one that comes to mind. 
Yeah, and I had a person at a bookstore um, point out the comic book that that started with, and I fully was like, I had no idea. That's super cool. Um, David, what are how do you feel about adaptations, especially having your own work adapted? Um, I, you know, I, I tend to take the philosophy when it's work that's mine or that I've that I've been contributed to. Well, my books are my books. Nothing will ever change those. Um, if they make a TV show and and I don't like the TV show, that's fine. You know, now if they'd hired me to work on a TV show and it didn't come out well, then there'd be a problem, right? But um, I, I tend to take the approach that that each medium is its own thing. Um, the, I just I just was a, I was a little bit behind on it, but um, I just watched on on Amazon. I watched the final season of Bosch, and and I I I find that to be an interesting show. In part, I, I haven't read any of Michael Connelly's books, so I have to be um, 100% transparent about that. But I've read about the books enough to know that like each season combines materials from different books. And so I'm fascinated about that. And, and on my to read list are a bunch of the Bosch novels, because I want to see how they, you know, cherry pick bits and pieces and put it together. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not going to say that I think that's the greatest show on television by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I, it's, I think there's something like 30 novels or something, and they, you know, they, they managed to do a show that was compelling enough that I, because I'm not necessarily a binge watcher or someone who will come back to a show if, like, you, you only get one chance to blow it with me, and, you know, maybe two episodes, and I'm like, ah, forget about it, um, and, and, the, uh, I, I will say this, it's not based on anything, but there is a show um, that's inspired by real events. And every time I watch an episode, I, I, I think to myself, like, what real events? What did they, uh, and that's a, a show called The Godfather of Harlem, which to me is the most audacious show maybe ever, because it's like Malcolm X doing things Malcolm X never did in real life, and Adam Clayton Powell, and and it's taken that the concept of, you know, based on true events, the only thing that's ever done it like warped reality more might be Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because in real life there were no chainsaws and it didn't take place in Texas. Um, but uh, I I am fascinated with like where did you what was your research material what were you reading when you when you when you made this thing and it and it just inspires me because it's like oh you can get away with anything if, if you use the word inspired by the big vote for creative license <laughs> angela outside of the manga books that you help bring to the public what kind of stuff do you love that that has an adaptation um, in its lineage Oh, that's that's a good question. I I've been so busy ordering reprints, I haven't had a chance to look at anything. But for me, one of one of my favorite adaptations. So manga is interesting because it comes out in Japan first, and then it's translated here. So some people have read the original. So I'm like, I never remember what happens in the timeline. So for me, the series is more of a reverse adaptation because I saw the movie first, but. Saint Young Men is just one of my favorite manga series. It's about Jesus and Buddha as roommates in Japan. And it's just so wholesome and so nice. But I guess the, the editor said, 
I want to, I, I saw this movie, I read these books in Japanese, and I want this in America. And, and we got it. And, and I keep on meaning to go back and watch the movies again, because I think it's just one movie. Someone's going to correct me, I might be wrong. And yeah, so it's, it's different for me to try to think of something because in my head, everything's an adaptation because we, because it's not, it's not, you know, in English first, which is also really fun. And I know we have a lot of theories on Netflix right now, which like I'll just flip through and I'm like, oh, I work on that book. Oh, I know that one too. Blue Period is a recent one that I haven't watched yet, but the story is just so wonderful. It's about an artist and like, you know, he's finding, you know, his creativity and, it's just, it's just a beautiful series. So I'm really excited to see that one. And that's a huge component of, of Netflix and other streaming media, and especially in the last two years, is a lot of American audiences are being exposed to very international um, content and stories and ways of storytelling and watching things in translation um, or with subtitles, which I think for a mainstream media wasn't always the case. And so it's really broadened, I think a period of extreme isolation and ge geospatial isolation has actually broadened our access to things that transcend formats as well as geography. Um, I'll throw in my adaptation because it it surprised me. It's in the public domain. It's it's around the world in 80 days, and I've seen various adaptations of it for various different audiences, but the most recent one on PBS here in the U.S. Um, is extraordinary. They've reframed the narrative a little bit. They've developed the characters in a way that Jules Verne did not. Uh, and they've injected a lot of cool side narratives and visually it's it's stunning. So I was just completely hooked on it, which, you know, for all of the new material out there, the ability to reimagine something in the public domain or something that's been done several times is also a, a cool opportunity. Um, yeah. So I, I was just curious if there are any other questions you guys have amongst yourselves without me kind of butting in and mediating since you all work in very different formats, but but comprehensively, we, none of these things would be possible without your individual contributions. I wanna know if I can take one of David's classes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure, you know, um, I'm, I'm actually taking, I, I took this year off from teaching simply because um, I'm so far behind on all my writing deadlines that um, I couldn't do both. I couldn't find that balance, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually working on some sort of, um, I, it, like, a, 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 an instructional guide for, uh, primarily for teachers or parents, um, how to teach your kids how to make their own comics. Um, I, 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 I'm frequently asked to, you know, be a guest speaker at, at a middle school or something like that, because they have a comic book club, and, it, it amazes me like, well, you, you have a comic book club, but none of you know anything about comics. Um, and, and then inevitably the kids want to know how to make their own comics. And, and so I, I feel like if I can come up with some really basic, simple lessons that I could share with, with um, write it in such a way that, that it's interesting to both young people and, and parents, um, because it also provides, I think it provides a very therapeutic opportunity to um, build communication uh, a lot of times between say young people and their parents. So um, yes, if, if my class, if, I, if I'm not, if you can't take my class at some point in the near future, I'll make sure I'll send you some of my lessons um, on, on how to make your, because anybody can make comics. I mean, it's, it's, um, it, it's, not, it's not rocket science, but there's um, a lot of it just about developing the skills and, and, and the patience that it takes 
And, um, and that's the thing, you know, patience is, is, um, you know, is, is, is in rare, as a rare commodity indeed. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, David. Um, Angela, there is a question that came in from the chat specifically for you, and I'll just read it verbatim. It reads, with manga having so many books in a series, do you see that sales are consistent across the entire series, or do you see a drop-off in sales in the later books of a series? That's actually a really interesting question. So I feel like for most series, you kind of see a drop-off in the middle. So the, the first few volumes, like volumes like one through four, will do great. We'll print like, I don't know, like millions of them. And then it slows down a little. But then when a series ends, it just, it, it explodes again. So yeah, so there's definitely, and, yeah, and you, always, you always wonder, like, did you not like it? Are you borrowing your friends? <laughs> like, I hope you're still reading the story. But it, it comes and goes, you know, and when a, especially if there is an anime. So... So, you know, got to keep the story going. Well, I'd love to keep this conversation going. It's been such a treat learning about your career paths and your particular skills uh, and just enjoying this conversation among colleagues. I want to thank the New York Book Forum again for allowing us to uh, have this conversation as a group. And I want to turn things back over to Janet. Janet, can you take it away from here? I think perhaps I can. Thank you so much to everyone on the panel. I'm going to do something that's really unprecedented, which is you never have the end of the program, which we're going to, this is the pre-end of the program, be where you introduce the person who's moderating the panel. But Pooja, somewhere in the technical notes, we missed introducing Pooja properly. So she is the licensing and subsidiary rights manager at the American Psychiatric Association in Washington, DC, where she oversees all the aspects of APA's translations, permissions, and digital content licensing activities. She's worked at NYU Press, the University of Washington Press, George Washington University Press, Brookings Institution Press, and she serves as an adjunct faculty member at George Washington University in DC. So I would be very remiss if I did not give her proper credit for her amazing accomplishments and thank her for her amazing moderation of the meeting. And thanks to all of you as speakers this evening, it's very exciting to have a group of people who are passionate about books, passionate about their parts in this whole publishing world that we all are grabbing onto. And I think if nothing else, if I heard nothing else tonight, when Meta said networking was critical, that is what the New York Book Forum is hoping to bring to the book publishing world in Manhattan, or in, actually in the, across the United States. We have to channel our skills. We have to learn from other people. And we have to be available to help teach people coming into this industry. And my heart goes out to the people that have come into it in the last two years during the pandemic, where they're working at home virtually. They don't have anybody to stand over them and say, do you need some help? Because in a real world, we would be saying, do you need some help? And they don't even know they need help. So 
it's it's been a hard two years and i think that what the new york book forum wants to do is sort of offer an outreach to people across the industry from the writer to the acquisition right through production manufacturing to sales distribution publicity promotion we want to connect the book publishing industry and we want to be available to network and help other people bring their careers along. So thank you, because what you've done this evening is just show how interconnected we all are. And so I thank everyone for attending. I beg you to go to the newyorkbookforum.org website. Right now, for six months, you can sign up for a free membership. So just be a member and see what happens. Do while you're in there, check out the YouTubes of the past programs because we have four or five events or programs there. There's a wonderful white paper by Jay Diskey, who is an educational specialist who took time to work with an author for us to talk about what happened during the pandemic to educational publishing and people trying to teach their children at home to read and write and do math while they work their full-time jobs remotely. It's not a pretty picture. <laughs> um, we're having another white paper coming out in April and very excited about it. It's about banned books and censorship in the book publishing industry. And the person that is writing that article is working with the executive director of NCAC. And our next program is going to be May 18th and it's going to be called the Paper Pause because as you all sort of noted during our conversations this evening, there are supply chain issues in our world these days and they are brought about by the pandemic and they're being intensified by what's going on abroad in Russia and the Ukraine. So I think that that meeting is going to be helpful or at least informative. And meanwhile, I thank you very, very much for attending and Thank you to all the speakers. Thank you, Pooja. Sorry for the late introduction, but at least we got it in there under the wire. And I look forward to seeing you all at meetings in the future. Thank you. Good night. Thank you.